0: Today is June 6, 2017, and my guest is Robin Feldman, the Harry and Lillian Hastings Professor of Law and Director of the Institute for Innovation Law at the University of California, Hastings College of the Law. She has written widely on intellectual property. Her latest book, which is the topic of today's discussion, is Drug Wars, How Big Pharma Raises Prices and Keeps Generics Off the Market. Robin, welcome to Econ Talk. Nice to be here. You know, before I read your book, I thought I understood patents and generics. Um, I was a happier person, too. Uh, <laughs> but but after I read your book, I, I, let me give you the before. I would have said, well, it's kind of straightforward. Uh, a drug company discovers an interesting drug. Uh, they They get FDA approval and patent it. And then they get a monopoly and they make a lot of money if it's effective and safe and gets that FDA approval. And then at some point, That expires, and generics come in, and the price plummets, and everybody gets cheaper drugs, which is great, but to encourage innovation, they get a long time where they get to make a lot of money at the higher price, and that's the end of the story. But it turned out the actual world is a lot more like, I don't know, Alice in Wonderland, uh, Kafka's – the trial, maybe Metamorphosis, I don't know, Uh, and it's a lot more depressing. So let's start – we're going to go back to 1984 and the Hatch-Waxman Act – Uh, What problem was it trying to solve, and how did it try to achieve that solution?
1: So the concept that you described of how pharmaceutical patents should operate is 100% correct. We love vigorous competition, but with patents, we suspend that for a period of time because research and development on pharmaceuticals takes a long time, is expensive, and so we want to create enough incentive so drug companies will invest in this research. So we give them a period of time in which they should be able to block out competition, be the only one in the market, and have a strong, healthy return on their profits um, on, on their investment. That's supposed to end at the end of the patent term. Um, the problem that was identified and described extensively in 1984 with the Hatch-Waxman Act is that that was not happening. We were supposed to see at the end of the patent term generics coming into the market, bringing the price down, and creating the vigorous competition that we love to see in markets. It wasn't happening for two reasons. One, uh, because it takes so long to get approval for a drug that the generic company would um, have to start their approval process when the patent ended. And so it would be years before they might get to the market. There was no guaranteed monopoly return for them at that point, an open market. So why would they go back and repeat everything the drug company had originally done to get um, approval? And then lastly, there were a lot of weak patents in the market that a generic company might have to fight off to get its way there. So for all those reasons, we were not seeing a large number of generics in the market. And in fact, prior to Hatch Waxman, approximately 13% of the prescriptions in this country were filled by generics. That's a very small number. So it's now um, 80 to 90%.
0: So that's the glass half full part of the story. Uh, unfortunately, yes. it's, there's a lot of half empty left. You said that um, that there are problems with weak patents that make it harder for generics. Can you explain that?
1: Yes. Uh, this probably gets into the weeds that you were talking about um, under the Hatch-Waxman system. If I am an a company that creates a new drug, I go to what's called the FDA Orange Book and I list all the patents that I believe um, might relate to this drug. A generic company coming on has to then make certain representations about whether they might be infringing one of these patents. Uh, Some of the patents that a company can put on the drug list could be very weak. But even before the generic um, drug system, the Hatch-Waxman system came into place, if a drug company filed a weak patent, um, that might sit there and block out competition for a long period of time, even if it was relatively weak, because a, generic, a would-be generic coming onto the market would have to risk trying to fight that off, but would have to make a choice about whether to do that even before it could get FDA approval. Yeah, so very I, don't exp- I don't understand
0: that. It's the weak part that's confusing to me, and I, and I just want to let listeners know that, although this is a little bit complicated, it's really extraordinarily uh, fascinating and weird as we get into the uh, implications of this. But it, it, as a non-lawyer, weak patent means it's kind of easily... Gotten around? Is that what a weak patent no. is? No,
1: no. A weak patent means that it ought that it ought to be invalidated. A weak patent means it shouldn't have been uh, uh, granted in the first place, okay. and it shouldn't be there. All so right. there are two million patents outstanding in the system today. Um, many of them, if they were tested, would not stand up in court.
0: But so it's I, very expensive. So I develop a new drug, I patent it, and it may turn mm-hmm. out that that patent's illegitimate. But, yes, but. As a generic, I don't know that potential generic competitor. I don't know that, and it's costly to challenge it. Is that a good summary of the problem? That's right. Okay.
1: That's right, and I think you know. To it's hard outside the patent system to understand why there are weak patents. Don't we have a, a patent and trademark office? Doesn't it just yeah. put a stamp on when the patent is good? <laughs> yeah. The problem is that the their the patent office is overwhelmed. And estimates are that it takes about two years for a patent to be approved. A patent agent will spend across that two years approximately two days worth of time reading the patent. Pharmaceutical patents are very complex and difficult. There may be hundreds of claims in a single patent, and that's all the time you get. And the theory is that if the patent is significant enough, It'll get fought out in court, and we will figure it out. But the reality is that there are a lot of very weak patents, patents that probably ought to be invalidated that are sitting out there on the
0: books. Okay, so let's go back to Hatch Waxman. Um, The first problem was that, bizarrely to me, of course, (laughs) as an economist or as a human being, uh, the idea that once a drug had already been approved by the FDA, if I've got the exact same chemical – I now have got to get it reapproved, going through usually years of clinical trials when, in fact, it's already been approved is bizarre. But that's one thing that Hatch-Waxman relaxed, which is a good idea, right?
1: Yes. So, so you're right. What seems perfectly obvious to you as an economist <laughs> took, took the, our patent system um, much longer and our regulatory system much longer to come to understand. So for the first person to bring a drug to market um, – I'll refer to them as the brand name company. Brand name company has to show safety and efficacy. The generic just has to show bioequivalence. So in simplified terms, the first company has to show that the drug is safe and works. The second company just has to say, I'm the same, me too. All you have to show is that you have the same drug as the one that has already been proven to be safe and effective.
0: And that was Hatch-Waxman to change to that
1: regime. That's what Hatch-Waxman did. Hatch-Waxman um, allowed the generic drug companies to rely on the safety and the efficacy data of the brand name drug, the original trials that were that were done to prove that. That was a, a key implementation. Now explain but the... Second,
0: yeah, go ahead. Sure. Go ahead.
1: So a, a second very important part of Hatch-Waxman was um, what's known as its paragraph four certification. Um, if, you, if you live in the pharmaceutical patent world, it, it's all full of um, abbreviations and short form. So this is paragraph four. But the idea was to try to give an incentive for generic companies to do battle against the big guns, to fight off weak patents. So um, the way the system worked, let me just step back one moment to, to explain something. It takes and a a certain amount of time to get through approval at the FDA, even (laughs) if you're just a generic company. Now, um, in order to do that, um, the company wants to be able to resolve the patent issues or the potential patent issues before it goes to all the trouble of doing the things it's going to need for FDA approval. Um, And so... The, the system allowed a way to accelerate that. Under patents, you're not allowed to, if someone holds a patent, no one else is allowed to make, use, or sell the product during the patent term. So if you can't make the product, mm-hmm. you can't do the things you need to get FDA approval. Um, and so that it's difficult to get the process started. Um, without opening yourself to a large amount of liability. So Hatch-Waxman created an artificial system in which, on paper, someone could be infringing the drug. You could go to the court and battle out all of the patent issues and the problems, get that all done so that as soon as the patent expired, you can come into the market. That may be more complicated an answer than than no, you wanted.
0: I, I think I need a more complicated answer. I could always do that. What did, what did Hatch Waxman? I could always say I don't think this is a good patent. Five years into the life of a of a of a drug, I'm going to challenge it in court. Now, obviously, you could lose. That's a big deterrent. It's a lot of expense, and so you might just wait till the patent expires. And certainly, when the patent expires, you have an incentive to to produce a generic if you've gotten rid of this clinical trial. Barrier hurdle, but what Hatch Waxman did was try to make that process seem uh, more streamlined, correct?: So
1: the process with a paragraph four certification is I say to the FDA, "I would like approval for this drug, and I certify one of two things: either that my drug does not infringe the patent or that the patent is invalid and plunking that piece of paper down creates an artificial act of infringement. That gives the brand name company notice, and the brand name company can then, it has a period of time to go to court and say, I disagree. So all of this can be worked out before the patent would have expired so that the drug company, the generic company gets its approval and is ready to hit the market in theory the second the patent expires.
0: So basically, and it's a kicker. Yeah, hmm? yeah, but basically, it's a way to break the law. Uh, and, and and the the court say it's okay. Go ahead, make the drug now. Challenge them, and uh, that way you can hit the ground running. If it turns out uh, that your patent is uh, you're fighting is either uh, invalid or just expires, and you'll be ready to go. Is that right? I think
1: I put it the other way around. It's a way to say I've broken the law when I haven't yet so that we can work out whether I would be breaking the law. And so we can decide this before I would be crushed by large amounts of damages if I were to break the law. And then we resolve it. And if I'm not breaking the law, then the minute the patent expires, I'm good to go.
0: But there's that kicker. Go ahead.
1: And then there's the kicker. So the kicker is that um, with the knowledge that there were a lot of weak patents out there, and hoping to entice generics to get into this expensive battling, Hatch Waxman creates a system where the first generic to successfully challenge a patent gets six months of exclusivity as a generic. It's really a a duopoly, a time when there will be two on the market. So... We have the original brand name company. We get the first filing generic who's successful. And then Hatch Waxman says for six months, the two of you will be the only ones on the market. After six months, all the other generics can come rushing in as well.
0: And those generics (laughs) that come rushing in, they Mm -hmm. all, I assume they do have, do they still have to show bioequivalence or do they just, they can just start?
1: Everyone has to show bioequivalence, no matter what. No okay. one can get on the market without FDA approval.
0: So they still have to wait for that. But after that, mm-hmm. they're good. They're all these extra, ideally multiple generics will come in, and the price will plummet.
1: And that is what happens across time. So when the first generic filer comes in, the drug price can, it makes it to market. The drug price can drop fifteen to twenty percent over time if multiple generics come in. The drug price can drop as much as eighty five percent.
0: Now the brand name company doesn't like this, obviously, and uh, before we talk about what they do to get around this uh, competition which and uh, which lowers their revenue dramatically from their previous discovery. Talk about how much money is at stake for some of these drugs uh, when a patent expires, and your price is going to fall fifty to twenty percent, and in six months, eighty or ninety percent.
1: So huge amounts of um, revenue and profit are at stake for a blockbuster drug. Sales can be in the one to two billion dollars a year. So to hold off generic competition, even for six months, in a blockbuster drug, that can be worth hundreds of millions of dollars in unchallenged sales. By that, I mean sales with with no one else um, on the market. The dramatic price drops after generic drugs enter the market, um, those create incredible incentives to try to, to keep off competition as, as long as possible. It's in the economic interest of a pharmaceutical company to keep that from happening as long as possible.
0: So in your book, you talk about three different generations of the ways that brand-name companies have worked to keep out that competition. So let's start with the first one, uh, the pay for delay.
1: So I do want to be clear that I, I separate into three Generations, but they don't fall neatly into time that way. So over time, you'll see Generation 1 happening at the same time as some Generation 3 happening, but there are three waves in which different types of strategies were developed. The first wave was called pay for delay, and it, it was fairly simple. The brand name company would pay the first filing generic a certain amount of money, and the first filing generic would agree not to come onto the market for a period of time. This would happen in the context of settling one of those Hatch-Waxman lawsuits. So Hatch-Waxman set up a process of litigation between the branded company and the generic. The two companies would settle. The generic would agree to stay off the market a period of time, and the brand name company would pay them. In economic terms, the brand name company is sharing a part of its monopoly rent with the first filing generic, um, and they're both happy. Who's not happy are the consumers and society in general because the price stays higher for a longer period of time.
0: And then, of course, the weird part, and I think I understand this correctly, but it's so weird that its i got to ask. So mm-hmm. if I'm... I'm this generic company, I've, I've gone through this legal process, I now have the right to produce the generic, I'm going to get a, a six-month uh, duopoly that holds off any other generic competitors, so I'm going to make a lot of money, and the brand-new company bribes me effectively, bribes me, not to come on the market yet. But the six-month period doesn't start yet until I've come on the market. Is that correct? So that the other generics can't come in until I finally enter, which means that by paying this fee, I can deter a lot of competition from the brand name. Is that right?
1: That's exactly right. It's horrifying. The, the two agree that, that no, because the way the statute is written, no one else can come in until the generic has come on the market. The first one. So everything stays the same. The Six month clock doesn 't start running until the generic makes it to market. Congress has tinkered with that language across time, trying to to keep this from happening. Um, the companies have just been more nimble, and so it still works in the same manner
0: that's just bizarre right i mean it's it's basically uh, you create this special legislation to encourage this generic competitor, and that creates the opportunity for the brand name to pay the this comp- single challenging firm. It's been encouraged to challenge. It can get this duopoly, and then it keeps everybody else out anyway.
1: That is the effect. It's not the effect that was intended. But the incentives are so great because the dollar figures are so large.
0: So that was eventually that – well, first, some people defend that as an okay thing. Can you make the argument? I know you don't accept it, but what's the argument for people who think that pay for delay is like a positive thing?
1: There are always arguments. So, so the argument here is that pay for delay is simply um, a settlement. And in any settlement, one has to figure out the risks of going to litigation, the risks of coming from litigation, what something is worth. And this is just um, a rational uh, reason to settle from both parties. There are reasons to be suspicious of that explanation in, in settlements, Generally, one doesn't see um, the the plaintiff paying the defendant. Usually, it's the other way around. Yeah. Um, so there are, there are things about these settlements that, that suggest strongly this has nothing to do with settling a case. It has everything to do with protecting um, and extending an exclusivity you're not supposed to have.
0: Yeah, it seems kind of straightforward, although I'm sure some, there are some – ways to defend it, uh, even from an economist's perspective. But my first thought is that's, that's a bizarre, um, clever way to use the legislation to extend the patent, period. You do have to share the profits, of course, but still, it seems like a crazy thing. Uh, but the courts eventually do what? The courts activist, eventually agreed with you. Yeah, and yeah, what do they, so the, what so do the, they the rule?
1: So the Supreme Court in 2013, in a case called Activist, um, eventually ruled that these types of settlements could be challenged um, as an antitrust violation. That that pronouncement in itself, although quite limited, was enough to um, allow the lower courts to, to begin um, uh, pounding away at these. And anticipation of these decisions has made companies begin to move away from pay-for-delay, just just simple pay-for-delay
0: settlement. Do you remember what the vote was on the Supreme Court on that on activists?
1: I don't remember what the I don't remember what the activists'
0: Curious. was. I'm just curious. Well, be we'll put up a link to it, but I would just wonder whether that was open and shut or not. Um, so that was yeah. the first, pay-for-delay was one technique, uh, but now that the court's and did you say this happened before 2013? Companies started to look for other ways. So, what was the what you call the second generation kinds of uh, ways that they could delay uh, competition?
1: So, second generation looks much like the first that is, settlements of these cases, but the settlements are more complicated. Generation 2.0 are complex side deals. So, the generic stays off the market, but is paid not in strict cash, but in some other type of benefit that's more difficult to detect. So, for example, you might see a number of cases between the parties settled, um, but if you tease each of the settlements apart, the major benefit is Um, value flowing to the generic in exchange for staying off the market. Or you see a settlement in which the brand name company pays the generic to do something for the brand company that is economically irrational. So a brand name company may pay a generic that's never existed and, and never done anything to market the brand name company for it. So you're paying someone who has no experience and knows nothing to, to do something for you. Or in one of the cases, the brand company paid the generic to market, uh, to, I'm sorry, to make the product, to manufacture the par- product. Generic company had no manufacturing ability. It just contracted out to a third party. So the generic basically paid, I'm sorry, the brand paid the generic a lot of money just to be a useless middleman. These are Generation 2.0. They're, they're much harder to detect. They're harder to tease out. They're more complicated under antitrust law for the courts to think about. Um, but they reach the same result. Generic gets a benefit and agrees to stay off the market for a period of time.
0: These are classic examples, much more complicated, of course, but classic examples of other types of ways that economists have looked at for, for decades in, evading, in the evasion of price controls. So, if you put, say, a rent control on an apartment in New York, so the apartment's worth, say, three thousand dollars a month, but the rent control's a thousand, the landlord might charge. In the old days, they've tried. I'm, I think they've gotten. A, they've stopped this now, but they used to charge. They might charge you. They charge you the thousand dollars because that was the rent control price. But to get the key, they charge you six thousand dollars to have the key printed, mm-hmm. uh, or a booster of a university. Football team wants to make a payment to a potential high school recruit. Uh, hires them for their uh, to work in their office, making photocopies, and pays them twenty thousand uh, dollars a month for that for that month that they do that. And of course, these are just ways that the regulations, which try to get in the way of these natural incentives, that have, in this case, been created by a separate piece of legislation. So it's kind of complicated, but uh, these are ways that. People get around these things, and then you have to then try to re-regulate. So, in the case of college sports, they make it illegal for a college athlete on scholarship to have a job. And you think, well, that's how could they, how could they do that's unconstitutional? And that it probably is. But the way that that's justified is, well, if we didn't do that, then there'd be a way easily to hide payments to athletes for coming to schools, which is what they're trying to stop. So, it's a, it's a beautiful example of that kind of hidden side payment.
1: That, that's exactly right. And I do want to step back for a moment because the example that, that you just went through um, hits a, a hot button for me, and that is complexity breeds opportunity. Yeah. A key problem in the Hatch Waxman system is its complexity. All of this system that we've come up with for the introduction of generic drugs breeds opportunities for manipulating it. And as Congress has tried to make changes here and there to keep drug companies from exploiting it, that's just more um, complexity. And so we end up with other opportunities, but we're, we're still fighting the same battle without making much ground.
0: It's – economists sometimes call this regulatory arbitrage. You see it a lot in uh, – it reminds the whole – this whole complex um, web of regulation and response reminds me a lot of financial sector regulation mm. where similarly you'll say, well, you can, you, can, you can borrow money to finance your activities if the stuff you're financing is really safe. And there's not enough safe stuff. So they solved that by creating artificially safe stuff. And it turns out it's not so safe, uh, which was a big part of the, um, the financial meltdown to, in 2008 was uh, things that were called AAA weren't AAA because there was an incentive for a variety of reasons uh, to be riskier than, than they should have been. Uh, but it's the same phenomenon here, and it's, it's, um, it's disturbing and depressing, but it's, it's reality.
1: I like to call it death by tinkering,
0: uh-huh. where you, you change a little
1: piece of <laughs> like here and a piece of air to the whole thing collapses of its own weight.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a great example of Hayek's uh, quote, which uh, my listeners are some, some of my listeners are tired of, uh, but I haven't said it in a while, which is the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they know about what they imagine they can design. And so mm. you you design this little thing. I'm I'm going to fix this problem. We need more generics. Oh gosh, it didn't work because this. So now I got to fix that, and then it just keeps going back and forth. Uh, let's go. So that's generation what you call generation two, uh, generation yeah. three. Why did generation two these side payments? Why did they? Uh, why are they less likely to be uh, seen now? And what's coming? And what's next?
1: So. One thing you have to understand about pharmaceutical industry is that it is extraordinarily sophisticated and takes a long view. Generation 2.0 is still quite active. Side deals are still occurring and becoming more complex and convoluted. However, companies have begun to anticipate the time when the court's may strike down these Generation 2.0 side deals as well. We're beginning to get decisions along those lines. Hasn't been to the Supreme Court yet, but where uh, an appellate court has said these side deals should be treated the same way as the cash deals. So with, with that problem on the horizon, companies have turned to or added on a new layer of a new generation, Generation 3.0. Now, in, the, in Generation 1 and 2, the game was about collusion. Generation 3.0 is about obstruction, trying to um, exploit aspects of the regulatory system to block the generics out of the market and to keep them out completely completely. These games generally come in a couple of different kinds of of baskets. Um, the two main baskets, one is still within the Hatch-Waxman system itself, using different ways to try to delay or block generics. And another basket is using an entirely separate system of non-patent exclusivities to create competition-free zones. I can describe whichever one in whichever order you would like. Go ahead. Either one. So, within Hatch Waxman, um, there's certain types of games companies can play to keep the generic from getting to market. Some of these involve what are called evergreening and, and product hopping. That is, you try to make a minor modification to the drug's delivery or dosage or something else related to the system, and then get a new patent on this new version, and then keep the generic from being able to come on to, to get involved in the system. Um, there are also a series of, of games that are played with with what are called citizen petitions, that is petitions that a pharmaceutical company can file asking the FDA not to approve a generic or to, to not to approve this generic. So
0: bizarre. A similar, no, it, getting... it, it reminds me yeah. of, of how a new hospital is required to get a certificate of need, and the existing hospitals are the ones that provide it. The idea that a existing brand-name company could petition to keep a generic off the market and just obstruct the process for a while, seems kind of cheating.
1: Well, putting that one aside for a minute, the example you came up with is actually actually precisely a different strategy that's played. Um, And uh, that has to do with denying the generic company the sample it needs to prove bioequivalence. So if you recall, the brand name company has to do all kinds of tests to show it's safe and effective. The generic just has to show it's the same. How do I show it's the same? I have to get a sample from the brand name company so I can go to the FDA and say, see, mine is the same. But if the brand name company won't sell me the sample, I can't do that. Can I just go buy it? Ah, here you would think. However, brand name companies have, in some cases, gone through extraordinary um, efforts to make sure that the generic company can't buy it at all. So let me give you one example. I Everybody's.
0: Can't, I can't mm-hmm. say it's for a friend. <laughs> so yeah. a generic company and a I knock believe, on the door. Hey, it's, it's not, not for me. It's for a friend.
1: <laughs> I believe that would be called um, illegal transfer of drugs. But so some of this, in some cases, you'll see companies that will only sell their drugs through limited distribution channels. We'll say we'll only sell to certain pharmacies or we'll only sell to certain um, hospitals. You, the generic, aren't one of those. And so therefore we can't possibly in good conscience transfer. There's a, there's a, there's a, a particular version of this that's under what's called the REMS system. Um, and that is a system that's put in place for particularly dangerous drugs or drugs that are um, at risk of creating um, he- bad side effects. So this happened um, in response to the. Do you remember the Viox drug? Yeah. That was uh, so Viox was pulled from the market after concerns were raised about heart complications. So in response to that, the FDA set up a, a system. So there with certain types of drugs, you could have them on the market, but you needed special warnings um, or perhaps limited distribution, but some way to make sure that the drug was particularly safe. So what you see in some of these cases is a drug that has a specialized plan like this, the generic comes to the drug company and says, I would like a sample of the drug to show bioequivalence. And the drug company says, oh, I'm sorry, you're not a special hospital or one of our special providers. We just don't think you're safe enough. We can't give it to you. And even when the FDA says, no, we think it's fine. Yes, you should transfer it to the, um, uh, the generics. They can prove it. The company says, I'm sorry, just wouldn't be prudent. And then they're stuck in a standoff. Um, so that's, that's one. Now, I, do you remember everybody's favorite whipping boy, Martin Screlly? Sure. Okay, so Martin Shkreli that, that used a version of this technique as a way to create a competition-free zone. So remember, he bought a drug that was selling at $13.50 a tablet and hiked the price to $750 a tablet. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a huge, a huge price rise. It uh, went from, let me see if I can remember what the annual amount was for that. I think it was $400 a month to $20,000 a month. That, that's um, shocking. Normally, if you see that kind of a price rise, you will see competitors come in uh, and, and enter the market. Because it was off-pat dark- at that point. It's off patent. The the drug is off patent. There's nothing protecting it. So um, the drug also was not protected by one of these REM safety protocols. It was completely not a protected drug. So Skrelly simply and his company declared that they would only distribute it through certain safety um, protocols and through certain types of distributors. The FDA... Hadn't even asked them. They simply declared, "We are going to do this," um, and then, of course, couldn't transfer something to a generic. And in fact, one of the executive of the company in an interview said, "Well, we're certainly not going to make it easier for the generics to get to the drug."
0: Yeah, I can't. I can't help but remark that raising the price of a drug to seven hundred fifty dollars is. unlikely to be a profitable strategy unless you're getting someone else other than the customer to pay for it. Of course, that's a whole separate issue. You talk about in the book in in a number of places, but one Mm -hmm. of the weird parts of this world, of course, is that the consumers who are ultimately consuming these pharmaceuticals aren't paying for them typically or not paying for them out of pocket. They're being covered either by government insurance or private insurance, and the, the people who have neither are the ones who are really punished relentlessly by the system, and Screlly is profiting... At the expense of taxpayers or premium holders, depending on which the case is, and uh, it's it's ugly, but it's it, for a while it was in it was in his company's self interest. This separate issue, though of the of the distrib- distribution channels, a whole other piece of this complexity. It's not just the high price, and I think that's just a it's a fascinating example of of and within this regulatory framework, you can get some. Things that would never happen in a normal market.
1: And that is... It it isn't... It isn't the type of market one would like to see. You have separation between the consumer and the party paying. You have different types of incentives because um, when my health is at stake, I feel willing to pay much more. Um, You have... um, you have some extraordinary subsidization going on at an international level as well. So drugs that sell for $400 overseas in other countries um, sell for $30,000 here. So you have a, a, an extraordinary difference um, between the drug pricing. So American citizens essentially are subsidizing... Yep lower prices in, in foreign countries. It's, it's a very complex market, and again, that breeds lots of opportunities for exploiting it.
0: I want to go back to product hopping because, yeah. again, as a non-insider, non-expert, this is kind of shocking, um, and you hear about it, and I, it never makes any sense. Now, I think I understand it, but it's it's still very depressing. So, I have a A drug that's very effective, it goes off a patent. I know that's going to cause generics to come in, and I'm worried about losing my monopoly profits. So I repackage it. I, let's say, change the coding of the drug with the claim that it's going to make it easier for people, say, to digest it or for it to be a little more effective in how quickly it's activated. And now I get to extend my patent because of that. That just seems absurd. (laughs) How does that work? How does that work legally? I don't get it.
1: Product hopping is a wonderful strategy. Aspects of it are sometimes referred to as evergreening, as in may your patent be evergreen. It It requires three factors. Timing, minor modifications, such as in dosage or delivery, and then market blocking. So you want to do this right about the time that your patent or other exclusivity is expiring, then make some minor modification, like to drug dosage or delivery, and then figure out a way to block the market. So let me, let me give you um, one of my um, all-time favorite examples, which is um, Asacol. Um, Asacol, actually, that's one where the product hop failed and they, they did something Slightly different, but I think it may have been the one you were referring to because of the way you described it. So here, um, with Asacol, you, you have a company approaching the patent cliff. Um, it actually tried a product hop, but failed. So instead, um, it introduced a new product, which was the same drug, except with an ineffective capsule around it. You cut the capsule and the old drug just falls out. Even the FDA agreed that the two drugs were exactly the same. The the capsule around it did absolutely nothing. However, the company got a shiny new patent on Delzacol. That was its new drug with a capsule around it that did absolutely nothing at all. The company then removed the old version from the market entirely. So when you do that, um, the doctor writes a prescription for the new drug, um, it's a, it's, sorry, it's, it, sometimes it is hard to describe it so complicated, it's hard for people to understand how remarkably clever it is, but here's here one of two things will happen. The um, doctor will write a prescription for the old drug, Asacol, goes to the pharmacist. is not on the market anymore. So the pharmacist can't fill it. There's a generic Asacol, but you can't fill the generic if there's no prescription for, if there's nothing there for the brand names. They may not be able to fill it at all. The doctor's not going to write one for Asacol anyway, because it's not on the market anymore. They're going to write it for Delzacol. You take the Delzacol, the pharmacist looks at the Delzacol and says, well, there is a generic, but I can't fill it with the generic because it's different. Because it says, doesn't have the
0: capsule around it?
1: Because it doesn't have a capsule around it, even though it does not, something, nothing. Um, and the generic says, okay, I'd like to put a capsule around mine, but you got a new patent, so you have to wait um, until the patent expires before okay. you put the new capsule around it. So so, you can't do that. So. so they've completely blocked the generics off the market. You could, you could go to court and fight the patent as ineffective. And when the generics fight... The um, brand-name patents in those paragraph four certifications, they win three-quarters of the time. But that takes money, and that takes time. And in the meantime, um, Asacol is sitting there, and it still has a complete monopoly on the market.
0: It's so depressing. So the, part, the two parts uh, – well, I understand both parts, I think, but I just want to clarify. The yes. first part is that I can't, as the generic – I, I can create my own fake capsule – but then I've got to do this process of challenging, and mm-hmm. so that's expensive in the time. So the natural thing is just to tell doctors, don't, dis- don't prescribe this stupid drug Delzacol that's got this ineffective capsule at X times the price. Just do my generic, and that bizarrely is not straightforward because of the incentives in the healthcare system that separate consumers, doctors, et cetera. And I, I'm just going to ask you this question. It's kind of um, – I don't know if you can answer it on air, but the Mm -hmm. the gist of it is I go to my dermatologist. She prescribes a Valiant drug, which is one of these companies that's doing these creative distribution things. She says, oh, by the way, you can't get it at your regular pharmacy. You have to go across the street. We have a special relationship with Walgreens. I say, oh, okay, who cares? It's fine. And I get there, and the drug's $1,200. But, of course, a lot of it, I'm reassured, is covered by my uh, health care insurance. But the whole thing stinks. There's something really ugly about it, and it turns out there's an over-the-counter solution that's $18, and I want to know why my dermatologist is playing along with this because it just seems like a way to exploit – is she getting a kickback? Is her practice just lobbied relentlessly by Valiant with pleasant gifts and things, or is it just, well, it's a little better than the thing that's over-the-counter because it's a minor condition. It's not worth even spending $20 for. I just decided to do nothing. That's, the whole thing is, is ugly.
1: <laughs> there's a huge information gap. It's not that doctors are corrupt. It's that they don't have information. And the way the generic system works is that in order to keep prices low, generics generally don't engage in the same type of extensive direct-to-consumer advertising or even as much um, advertising to doctors. The concept is supposed to be that the doctor prescribes the medication and then the pharmacist looks to see the least expensive version and fills it. The doctor isn't supposed to have to worry about all these things. Part of the problem goes back to advertising. The United States and New Zealand are the only countries in the world that allow direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription medications. That in itself is a powerful tool for not just advertising to the doctor, but also advertising to the patient. And the patient comes in and says, I've seen this new thing and I think it's going to help me. So you've got a lot of pressure going in in all kinds of directions. The doctor is busy trying to figure out how to treat you and is unlikely to have the time to go out and figure out who's charging more or less or exactly what is a little bit or a little less um, effective, but won't matter. Nobody's watching the hen house.
0: Well, there's one player that is, though, and that's the the last piece of this puzzle, and that's the insurance company. So my insurance Mm -hmm. company really wants me to be using that generic uh, in this particular case. They're going to be the ones, because, again, not everyone's covered by insurance, but for the people that are, You're right. I don't have an incentive. I I want the brand name. I want the the Delcazol, whatever it's called. I don't want that that generic because it's not coming out of my pocket often. So why don't the insurance companies who are not fooled by that direct-to-consumer marketing, why aren't they making sure that when there are generics that are bioequivalent to these fake brand name new patented things, why aren't they making sure that the generic is what gets prescribed?
1: The insurance companies do have an incentive to keep the cost down. But there are several pieces that get in the way. <clears throat> Remember that the largest insurance company is the federal government yeah. through its Medicare system. Yeah. And we have a piece of legislation that says the Medicare um, the government can't negotiate on prices. It's got to just take what it's what it gets. So that that system is set up in an economically irrational fashion. Then you're also assuming that the generic actually got to market. Some of these games that I talk about are keeping the generic from getting to market at all, so there isn't, there isn't an incentive. Um, and the, the pricing mechanisms can be done in a very clever way. If I get an insurance company um, or a large payer that's objecting, I can try to work out a special rebate or a special deal for that. If I'm getting heat from a certain patient advocacy group about indigent patients, I can give rebates and pricing there. So it takes the heat off in various places. As long as we don't have sunshine on pricing, as long as we can't see what's happening with all of these deals, uh, you can move the shells around fairly effectively.
0: So I want to make an observation about ideology here uh, mm-hmm. and then uh, and let you react to it. So you mentioned in passing that Uh, legislation does not allow – restricts the U.S. government from negotiating drug prices. And Mm -hmm. I'm a free market guy, hardcore, so my first thought is, yeah, that's right. They should just pay the market price. They shouldn't be able to use their market power as the largest buyer, and I think they're a huge portion. It's not just they're the biggest. They're also huge. It's two separate points. It's not just they're the largest. They're also large. Uh, so they could have a big impact on market price and certainly on tax the revenue uh, that has to be raised to fund Medicare and Medicaid drugs, so, but especially Medicare because older people use more drugs, use more pharmaceuticals. So the free, car, the free market part of me says, yeah, the government shouldn't be interfering in the market price and using its weight. It should just pay the market price, but that is only true in a system where there is a market price already. And there isn't a market price here. It's a, a very distorted system because of all the incentives that we've been talking about. And I want to read a paragraph from your book, which I thought was extraordinarily great. Uh, and and it, it illustrates this, but I want to add uh, just one footnote to it. You say, quote, granted, one cannot fully blame companies for engaging in behavior that is strongly in their economic self-interests when regulation is unclear or riddled with loopholes. If society wishes its interests to prevail, then the legal system must bring the incentives of the players into proper alignment with the goals of society by creating either sufficient incentives or sufficient disincentives. We cannot expect the rats in the maze to run in the direction society wishes if the cheese is located at the other end. And as the generic system in the United States currently operates, the cheese is poorly located. Not that was a brilliant paragraph, and again, I think free marketers have a A very unfortunate tendency to say, well, they're acting in their own self-interest. That's okay. And they're just responding to the legislation, the loopholes that you mentioned. And I think that's the wrong thing for free marketers to argue in a system where it's not a free market because the rats help write the legislation and put the cheese where it is. So there's a reason that, that Medicare doesn't, uh, doesn't negotiate with, with pharmaceuticals, that it's because pharmaceutical companies are really powerful politically. It's not because, well, oh, that's a great idea. Thank you, by the way. End I, of rant. I appreciate that. End of rant. It, that,
1: that's one of my favorite paragraphs, and <laughs> uh, it is what I deeply believe. It, it's not helpful to go around bashing companies and, and saying, oh, they're these horrible people, they're acting in economic self-interest. We have an obligation as a society to figure out a better system, um, and, and we need to take that responsibility, and that includes members of Congress who are being extensively lobbied. Yeah. Um, but there, it is possible to construct a better system, we, but we have to take that responsibility. You can't sit back and point fingers and say, oh, it's the dreaded HMOs are the dreaded insurance companies or the horrible pharmaceutical companies. They, they, you know, there's plenty of blame to go around, but at the end of the day, if we care as a society, we have to have a better system that has the right incentives. I would love to um, just talk for a second about the citizen petition um, area because that is one of my favorite of the new and emerging games, and it's one that, that I've looked very closely at. So if your time allows, yeah, I'd
0: ahead. love to talk oh, about ahead. that a little bit. So the citizen petition and process. We'll, and then we'll talk about yeah. reform a little bit. Uh, <laughs> we'll make sure we leave not too much time for that. So we don't have to, <laughs> have to put the burden on you of solving it in at all. So go ahead.
1: It's easy to be an armchair. As yeah. you, as an academic, I can solve anything in 10 seconds. <laughs> all right. So citizen petitions were um, started in the 1970s. Um, the idea was to give citizens the ability to participate at regulatory agencies and to express their concerns. It was supposed to be power to the ordinary citizen. Um, So I looked at 12 years of FDA data of citizen petitions filed at the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, And uh, I'm particularly proud of this data because it was published before the book in, in two different peer-reviewed journals, one at Stanford and also in the New England Journal of Medicine. And what I found in that data was just remarkable. The concerned citizen at the FDA is frequently a drug company who's raising questionable claims in a last-ditch effort to hold off competition. The, these petitions um, that I'm talking about are ones that seek to delay generic competitors, they've doubled since 2003. So this is what I talk about, Generation 3.0, a new wave of looking for obstructionist tactics. They may ask the FDA to do things that the FDA already does. They may ask for things that are impossible. They may ask for things that are silly. The FDA denies the petition and the action taken in 80% of the time, but it still takes time. Citizen petitions have become a major vehicle for pharmaceutical companies that want to block generic competition. And in this um, 12 years of data that I looked at, in some years, almost one out of every five citizen petitions filed at the FDA were related to delaying generic entry. So that's looking at every topic, food, tobacco, devices, my favorite dietary supplements. If you look at all of those in some years, one out of every five was a company trying to block a generic from entering the market. It's a huge amount. 40% of these petitions were filed a year or less from the time the generic of of the FDA approved the generic. In other words, they were probably last ditch efforts to just hold off a little bit longer. And that can be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So the FDA has five months to respond to one of these petitions. No hurry. (laughs) Even if it, exactly. Even if it denies the petition, um, the company has gotten another five months of unchallenged sales. For a blockbuster drug that's got $500 million of sales during that period of time, that's a pretty good deal. It costs about $25,000 in legal fees to file one of these pieces of paper. Uh, And if you can get a few hundred millions of dollars in in, uh, unchallenged sales, it's a pretty good deal.
0: Crazy, um, so let me challenge your optimism, and then i 'll let you <clears throat> respond with with uh, whatever you have le- optimism you have left so as a as an economist as an, as an outsider learning about this complexity for the first time in the detail that you 've provided in the book and in our conversation, my general thought is that we have two really flawed institutions at the root of this problem. Uh, one is we have this third-party payment system that means that doctors and patients don't have an incentive to be fully informed about the cheapest alternatives. We have a gatekeeper, the FDA, that I think is a horrible institution. Um, I'd get rid of it. That puts me in a very small group. It's not a very realistic policy proposal. So put that to the realism of it aside, but just the re- reality is, is that the FDA is – a political organization in by definition it doesn't think of itself that way but for a long time it just took very long we don't allow european approval to to fulfill the equivalent the requirements even though there could be years of of data that would prove the safety and efficacy so there's lots of things built into the system that make it really easy to be a large drug company and i i would argue that it's an example of what we call on this program after Bruce Yandel's term, bootleggers and Baptists, there are these attractive reasons. Oh, the FDA, we have to have safe drugs, but of course it gets manipulated in ways that tends to make large drug companies happy. And they of course advocate for it because they want safe drugs too. They'll tell you, but they also like the profits. So I see two flawed, deeply flawed institutions and attempts to, uh, fix that third and fourth level of legislation strikes me as quixotic. So, um, Put on your Don Quixote hat and tell me why we might be able to improve it despite those underlying flaws.
1: Well, I am endlessly optimistic. <laughs> and I, I I do believe that even if we cannot solve everything and we might be able to, we could certainly do much better than we are doing now. Yeah. And I think there I think there are, are a couple of key um, overview approaches. I could talk to you about weeds, but let me just talk to you more about the, the breadth and the overview. One is ruthless simplification. You have to have much more simple systems that are not um, subject to the same types of complex manipulation as the systems we have in place. I, I like to think about it as, to some extent, um, thinking about, I know no one loves the tax system, but there's a particular rule in the tax system I love um, which is the SEP transaction doctrine. And it says, even if you have figured out how to underneath the rules manipulate it so you get to a good result, we're going to collapse it all and just say you can't do it anyway. That Those types of um, standards-based approaches in addition to the rules are important. They're, they're important for trying to cut through some of these things. But you really have to have a much, you really have to simplify the systems much more so than what we have. The second um, and and very important piece is, um, well, let me step back and give you one additional one that I don't think of. And it really depends sometimes on the audience you're, you're talking to, but I feel free to say this in an econ talk conversation on your show. You have to have functioning competitive markets. You have to think about incentives. Um, you, you cannot imagine that you'll solve the problem by um, telling a pharmaceutical company what to charge or by putting in a price control or by any of the other types of market manipulating mechanisms that get get discussed. You have to understand that the the Bottom line is effective competition, and even when you're in the odd position that you have companies saying, please, please don't subject me to competition, you have to ignore that. A functioning effective market is what we need. The third, and I think the third is really important, and that is sunshine. Part of the reason that the types of games have been so effective in the pharmaceutical markets is that they're complex. They're difficult for the public to understand They're difficult for policymakers to understand, and that makes it easier for those who are experts to manipulate it. But in a modern system where we have social media that can knock down legislation that comes up, when you have lots of different players in the system, nice, bright sunshine goes a long way. And so whatever we can do to expose what the prices are, to expose what the games are, to translate them into terms that ordinary citizens can understand, those steps will go a huge way so towards helping us find a more rational, um, competitive, and effective system.
0: And I like to believe, this is my quixotic side, I like to believe that uh, informing listeners through this kind of episode of Econ Talk will maybe make people a little more aware of what the issues are, and that's, I suppose, some some solace and, and some help maybe down the road in the political process. I need to increase my my audience, though, a little bit, I think, to have a real impact. So all of you out there, get a friend. Um, let's close with a question about half full and half empty. So I've been – we've talked a lot about regulatory arbitrage, death by tinkering. Um, and yet you could argue, and I think it might even be true, that for all of its flaws uh, – the Hatch-Waxman Act in its current state has improved the competitive landscape of the pharmaceutical world. It's true that there are these horrible cases you've been uh, depressing us with, but there's lots of cases that are successful. Uh, there are a lot of generics out there. Hatch-Waxman made them easier. Again, I would emphasize that they had to. Uh, we needed legislation for that because of the weird way our system's organized and the way that patents and FDA interact. But put that to the side. Would you argue that Hatch-Waxman is, is a half-full story or half-empty? And, and, and you're just trying to get the level up a little bit more with these kind of reforms if it's half-full.
1: i I'd idea of Hatch-Waxman is half-full. Half in fact, I'd say Hatch-Waxman has been miraculous in moving us toward a system of generic drugs. The real miracle, however, will be if it continues to survive as these new waves of game-playing unfold. That's our challenge. And if if your listeners can be involved and appreciate the types of things that you're saying, I think we have a good shot.
0: My guest today is Robin Feldman. Her book is Drug Wars. Robin, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. My pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty.